turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. How many of you doubted that we would get to this point? <laughs> I actually wouldn't be mad at you if you had raised your hand, but it's taken a while. We're getting there. We're almost done. Looks like sometime by the end of September, we're actually going to be finishing the book of Acts. Uh, Lord willing, I should say. But that's the uh, projected sort of uh, path, if you will. And yeah, just pray for me for whatever the Lord has next. I have, you know, like a running list of like half a dozen books that I'm praying through, but just want to want to know what the Lord has for us in this season. So anyways, Acts 25, we're continuing on our study through the book of Acts. We're going to be looking today at embracing the call of God. Embracing the call of God. Our main text is Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. But let's actually start our study by reading those verses up front. So Acts 25, starting in verse 1. Again, this is Luke, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul who is recording all of this. Luke records for us here, Acts 25, verse 1. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus, verse 4, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Verse 9, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Right away, I want us to understand that Paul appealing to Caesar in verse 11 was actually Paul embracing the call of God upon his life. Not that Paul hadn't embraced and, and walked in the call that God had, had upon his life from the time of his conversion about 22 years earlier on the road to Damascus, but that in the progressive nature of the call of God in Paul's life, which 
understand is also true for each of us as believers as well. God's call is progressive in nature. He speaks to us different things over the course of our walk with him, oftentimes deepening our faith in him, calling us into new things, maybe uh, giving us specific direction. And, and this is often how God works, and it, it was true for Paul's life. But that in the progressive nature of the call of God, Paul was now embracing the most recent call, the most recent commission he had received from the Lord, which came actually two years earlier. Let me remind us of that account in Acts 23, verse 11, which came the night before the assassination plot against Paul had become known. We read this in Acts 23, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, stood by Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. The the most recent call, the most recent commissioning that Paul had received from the Lord was that Jesus said that Paul must bear witness, must testify about him in Rome. No timetable was given. Jesus didn't say, hey, you know what? Two years and eight months from now, you're going to get there. He said, you're going to get to, You're going to testify in Rome. You know us, right? Like it, when we find ourselves in a position where God is making something clear to us, we want to know The timetable, because that's how we work. That's how we plan our lives. I want to know when my next work shift is. What am I supposed to be doing? Not like each day going, am I working today? I mean, I know some people are on call, and that can be sort of the normative for their life, but there's some usually kind of like heads up of maybe what to expect. No timetable was given to Paul. He wasn't told how he was going to get to Rome. But Paul now had this certainty that that Jesus was going to get Paul to Rome where he was going to bear witness to Jesus Christ. But, But I also want us to understand that Paul had already been embracing that call that God had placed on his life to bear witness at Rome before appealing to Caesar, that he had already committed himself wholeheartedly to the call of God in his two years of imprisonment leading up to this point in chapter 25. The reason I believe we see him embracing the call of God before his appeal to Caesar in verse 11 is that Paul could have appealed to Caesar two years earlier And saved himself two years of unjust imprisonment. I've thought about this as I've watched the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Like, we we get to where Paul's in Jerusalem, right? And he finally says something about his Roman citizenship. And, And it gets him out of being scourged. But then we think about other times in the book of Acts where Paul didn't utilize it. 
He was still a citizen then, like in Philippi. He lets them beat him and put him in the stocks in the inner dungeon for a whole night. And, he, and it wasn't until after that when they came to get him out that he goes, actually, I'm a citizen. Paul, why didn't you say that when they were, like, right about to beat the crud out of you? Like, why wasn't it at that point that you said, hey, I'm a citizen. You can't touch me. Like, Paul, you were in prison for two years. How come two years earlier you didn't go, I don't want to do this. I don't have to do this. I'm going to appeal to Caesar now. I'll take my appealing to Caesar. I'm going to put down my appeal to Caesar card. Because I don't really want to be stuck here in Caesarea. That's cool that you're letting my friends visit me, but I'm still in chains. I'm still bound to an officer. I don't really like this. Why didn't Paul appeal to Caesar two years earlier? Why didn't he appeal at some point during the two years while Felix was still governing and trying to get a bribe from Paul? Paul could have avoided some of these things, but why didn't he? Well, Paul must have believed that God had a purpose in his imprisonment there in Caesarea, must have believed that in between his time bearing witness to Jesus in Jerusalem and, and what was to come in Rome where he would bear witness to Jesus there too, that in that in-between time between Jerusalem and Rome, the Lord wanted him to continue to bear witness, to testify to Jesus whether he saw any fruit from his gospel sharing opportunities or not. You know, what keeps us fixed in place when things are hard? What keeps us from bailing? What keeps us from quitting? When stuff is difficult, we fall back on what we know. We fall back on what God has said. We fall back on, on the faithfulness of the Lord. We fall back on those things that we know that the Lord has spoken into our lives. We stand firmly upon the word of God, the promises of God, the confidence that God has given us. And, and those things keep us firmly fixed in place. And that was true for Paul. That's how Paul was able to stay there in Caesarea for those two years. Continue meeting with Felix, even though Felix was only meeting with him because he just wanted some money. Paul endured those two years of injustice because his passion was to see lost people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even if that meant him having to be a prisoner who was being held unjustly by a corrupt Roman governor. See, Paul understood that God's call upon his life was to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel and make disciples. Wherever the Lord placed him, wherever the Lord sent him, and the same call 
has been placed upon each of our lives as disciples of Jesus. We might not have that same sort of, you know, specific location, like Jesus showing up to Paul and saying, I'm going to take you to Rome. You're going to be in Rome. But the commission has already been set. The commission has already been given in Matthew 28. The call is already there. But oftentimes we want some other calling. Lord, I want a different calling to embrace. I mean, if we're honest, maybe God's put people in our lives who are just really difficult and we go, Lord, I'd rather embrace a calling to some other people that are a little bit easier, a little bit nicer, a little more friendly, who love me more, who treat me nice, who do nice things for me. I want that kind of calling, Lord. I'll embrace that calling with every ounce of my being. But Lord, this one? This one that you've set before me, these people that you've called me to, this moment in time, this job, this friend group, this neighborhood, this neighbor, that we would be able to go, Lord, I don't need some new additional calling. I have already your word that gives me specific direction, specific instruction, specific commands even. Because the commission is a command to go, Lord, you called me to preach your gospel. You called me to be a disciple maker as your disciple. So, Lord, help me to embrace that just as Paul embraced his calling. And as we consider these things and study these verses this morning, I pray we do learn from how Paul embraced the call of God in his life, even in spite of difficulty, even in spite of the unknown. Jesus didn't say, hey, you're going to bear witness to me in Rome, and then you're going to be set free. He didn't say, you're going to bear witness to me in Rome, and all of Rome is going to get saved. He didn't tell him any of the outcome. He didn't say, Paul, in Rome, you're going to die. Paul, in Rome, you're going to be dismembered. No, he just says, Paul, you're going to testify. You're going to tell people about me. That's what you're going to do. And I don't know about you, but the things oftentimes that hold us back, hold me back, is I want to know the timing and I want to know how God's going to do it up front. God, tell me when, tell me how, give me the details. And I'll step right into that thing if I like it, right? But there's this thing about our walk with the Lord. It's called a life of faith. It means we have to trust him in all things, every day, in every moment. Pray that we'll learn from these things of how we can embrace the call of God upon our lives as well. But for a final bit of context before we dive into our passage, as a reminder, in the, the final verse of chapter 24, we, we saw that Paul was, was kept in custody, again, in the praetorium in Caesarea for two years by the Roman governor Felix, who 
left Paul bound because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. But part of the reason historically that that Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor was because he was hoping that keeping Paul bound would cause the Jews to actually be merciful to him. See, Felix was responsible for having the high priest, the Jewish high priest, Jonathan, assassinated. And towards the end of Felix's rule as governor there in the province of Judea, he was accused of being excessively harsh towards the Jews, and he was actually responsible for an overly violent response to a Jewish uprising. And so because of that, uh, the Roman emperor, Caesar Nero, removed Felix as governor. This is why Festus has now succeeded Felix as governor of Judea. And, and, And not much is known about this man, Portius Festus, except for what we know, as I've been referencing the last week, that he was into race cars I'm just going to keep milking it for as long as I can, which, which really is it's still a little while because we're going to see Portius Festus some more in chapter 25 and 26. So maybe I'll use the Portius. Anyways. <clears throat> Moving on. Not much is known about Festus outside of the book of Acts, but he is mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus. Who, who mostly had a favorable outlook on Festus's short rule as governor. And it's thought that, that Festus actually only governed for like two years and that he died in office before being succeeded by the next uh, governor that came after him. But again, with, with that in mind now, just some context. Verse one through five. Verse one, now when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So Festus, a new governor, is in a new area. And he decides after getting to Caesarea, which was the political center of that Roman province, to go to the religious center of that province, which was Jerusalem. And so he travels three days afterwards to Jerusalem. The the Jews don't seem to waste any time. As soon as they hear that their new governor is there in their area, they, they go to him. And at the top of their list of things to talk to Festus about was Paul. They informed Festus against Paul. And that word informed in the Greek means that they made formal accusations and indictments against Paul. These were all just false accusations. They were all just lies and deception intended to create a a bias in Festus' mind against Paul. They, they petitioned Festus. They asked a favor against Paul. Hey, you're new. Here's sort of our first request. Here's our first favor. Can we ask a favor of you? You're new. We're kind of a big deal here in Jerusalem. We, we kind of oversee the religious life. We're kind of like, we're actually kind of the people who rule. 
the Jewish people? Like, yeah, we have you and you're the ruler over all of us, but we carry a lot of clout. Can you do us a favor? Have Paul be sent here to Jerusalem to, to, to meet with us. But Luke tells us that they, they were wanting to summon Paul to Jerusalem because they run, wanted to lay an ambush along the road to kill him. <clears throat> Again, two years have passed. Two years since the religious leaders with their lawyer Tertullus stood before Felix and Paul. Two years have gone by. Clearly, they have not forgotten about Paul. They still very much hated Paul, and they were still very much committed to killing Paul. Now, we don't know if they told Festus that they were going to lay an ambush for Paul along the road to kill him, or if Luke is just inserting this here for us so that we know their motivation and plans. But from Festus's response in these verses, it doesn't seem that he knew that they planned to kill Paul because Festus does not grant their favor. He, he seems to actually really want to handle their accusations in Paul's case in a just manner. But, but this is just kind of crazy. Two years earlier, there was a group of more than 40 assassins who plotted to kill Paul. They got the religious leaders involved in their plan. But now we see that the religious leaders have become themselves the assassins. This isn't like another group. They're going, we'll, we'll lie in wait. We'll set the ambush. We'll take him out. So this is, again, this is, the, this is the religious sort of environment. This is the religious culture, an environment of, you know, a, a heavy thumb over the people, an environment to try to get rid of anyone who might be a threat to their sort of thing that they had going on over the people. It was the same sort of thing that Jesus dealt with in his day. Remember, Pilate noted that the Jews were giving up Jesus because of envy, the same sort of thing is happening now. We see again, verses 4 and 5, Festus doesn't grant their favor, doesn't give in to their request, tells them that Paul's going to be kept in Caesarea, that they could come with him, that he was going to be going there shortly to see if uh, Paul had any faults, so they could accuse him there. But so far, Festus seems to be a, a completely different kind of man and politician and ruler than Felix, not just in Festus being a man of action and not procrastination, but also in wanting to do things the right way and, and not being filled with corruption and greed. But let's continue on, verses 6 through 8. It says, And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went to Caesarea, went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Festus has basically been on the job as governor for about two weeks. 
you're new to an area, and the very first thing you come to Jerusalem, here's these religious leaders who have a serious problem with this Jewish man named Paul. They want to kill him. They're completely against him. They're laying all kinds of serious accusations against him. And this is his first kind of problem on his hands. And it's, again, centered around this, this man named Paul. But once he sits down in the judgment seat, Paul's brought in. The religious leaders come. They lay all their accusations against Paul. And Paul, again, is having to endure another trial with more false accusations from the religious leaders, but now under this new governor, Festus. We see in verse 7, the Jewish religious leaders from Jerusalem laid many serious complaints. This actually, in the Greek, means that they, they laid against Paul heavy criminal charges. This wasn't them like, you know, if we look at just sort of the the English translation and see that they had serious complaints, we just kind of come away with, you know, they were just complainers. I don't really like Paul. Festus, we don't like him. They're just complaining about Paul. He's, he's a turd, you know, like whatever, whatever kind of thing. Like it's not a, I know I just said turd in church, but you know what I mean? I already said crud. You might as well say turd at that point, right? These were not just like them complaining. These were criminal charges that were being brought against Paul, which Luke tells us that they could not prove. We get some insight into what kinds of unprovable and false accusations they were making about Paul by by how Paul responds in verse 8, where he says that neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar had he offended in anything at all. So similar to the trial that took place two year, years earlier before the religious leaders, when they had that lawyer Tertullus with them, they again accused Paul of violating Jewish law, of, of violating the temple, but, but now added in some way that Paul had done things against Caesar, the emperor. And from what Felix says later in this chapter, the, the religious leaders throughout sort of this time were crying out to him that Paul was not fit to live any longer. They're just like, just kill him. Kill him. You know, like that's just, here's what he did. Kill him. And he did this. Kill him. Just, he needs to die. This guy shouldn't live. He's taking up space. The, the tactic of the religious leaders was just to put Paul in the worst possible light and accuse him of things that would be clear violations, even in the eyes of the Roman governor, that would be punishable by death. Even though it was all lies, they couldn't prove any of the things that they had accused Paul of. Paul's only response, what, once it was his turn to give his defense to the religious leaders' false accusations, was to say that he hadn't offended, hadn't violated, hadn't sinned in anything that he was accused of. But in verse 9, we see Felix, uh, Festus's response. It says in verse 9, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So we, we already saw that Felix delayed justice 
and left Paul bound when he was removed as governor because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. But now we see this new governor, Festus, delaying justice as well because he also wanted to do the Jews a favor. So while Festus may have had a greater desire for justice, he was also still a politician who wanted the favor, wanted the approval of those that he governed. Festus didn't grant the request of the religious leaders when he was in Jerusalem, but, but now he's seeing an opportunity to gain more favor in their eyes. And he asks Paul, he doesn't tell him or demand of him, but he asks him, knowing he's a Roman citizen, if he's willing to go to Jerusalem and be judged there before him concerning the things that he was accused of. Festus had the power and authority and he had the opportunity to judge Paul right then and there in Caesarea and set him free. In fact, as we'll see later in this chapter, Festus knew that Paul had done nothing deserving of death. But his desire to be seen in a good light by his new citizens kept him from doing the right thing here by giving Paul his freedom back. And, you know, just in sort of the very human element, I'm sure there must have been a mixture of discouragement and frustration in Paul at this moment. Hoping that Festus would do the right thing, tired of being kept a prisoner in Caesarea for two years, And when we consider the plot of the religious leaders to hide out and, you know, kill Paul, he he acts humbly, he acts honorably, yet firmly in his response in the next verses. So let's read verses 10 through 12. It says, verse 10, so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. You know, when we consider all Paul had already been through in Jerusalem that led to him being kept as a prisoner in Caesarea for two years. And when we consider the plot of the religious leaders to hide out and kill Paul on the way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was not a safe place for Paul to be. Even without Paul getting insider information about the religious leader's desire to ambush and kill him, like when his nephew overheard the assassination plot two years earlier and told told Paul about it, Paul must have known that returning to Jerusalem and, and being in the hands of the religious leaders in any way would mean his death. Paul's response to Festus's question about whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem to be judged was that he stood at Caesar's judgment seat where he ought to be judged. He's saying, look, I'm already standing right now in a place where judgment can take place. You can judge me now. We're in the right place for that to happen. He, he reminds Festus that he knew very well that Paul had done nothing wrong to the Jews. 
and he, and he says that if he was an offender or if he had committed anything deserving of death, that he didn't object to dying. So Paul's willing to take the judgment if the judgment was deserving. But if there was nothing true in the things that the religious leaders were accusing him of, and there wasn't, Paul says that no one could deliver him to them because he was now appealing to Caesar. Paul doesn't go off on the religious leaders because of their false accusations. He doesn't go off on Festus, who knew that Paul had done nothing worthy of death, that he had done nothing wrong. He was humble enough to say that if he had done something worthy of death, you know what, I'll, I'll take the punishment. But he wasn't willing to let these religious leaders try and thwart the call that Jesus had upon his life to get to Rome. And because of this, he used his, his Roman citizenship now, citizenship now at this point to appeal to be judged by Caesar. And I want us to understand here that Paul appealing to Caesar wasn't his way of purely just wanting to escape the potential danger of going to Jerusalem because of the religious leaders who wanted him to be taken there so they could kill him. Because there were also many unknown dangers in going to Rome to stand before Caesar. In fact, the, the, the journey to Rome was going to be extremely dangerous for Paul, as we'll see in the next chapters. A shipwreck where everyone almost dies. Paul's going to be bitten by a venomous snake. Like, the, the, going to Rome wasn't a guaranteed, like, safe sort of thing to bank on. No, Paul appealing to Caesar was him, again, embracing and stepping into God's call, God's will for his life. Paul knew that Jesus wanted him to go to Rome, that he was going to testify, bear witness about Jesus in Rome, and nothing was going to deter Paul from obeying Jesus and being faithful to walk in the call that Jesus had for his life. Paul used his rights as a Roman citizen in order to further the gospel by appealing to be judged by Caesar. And Festus could not deny him. He had to grant his request. To Caesar you shall go. You know, I doubt this turned out the way Festus wanted. This must have felt like his first failure as governor. Like, wow, I, th I thought I was going to get the Jews to do, like, I'm going to do them a favor. I'm going to really be seen really great in their eyes. Like, I'll, I'll get them back to Jerusalem. And now it's all taken out of his hands as Paul appeals to Caesar. But this also probably didn't turn out the way Paul initially would have wanted. I'm sure Paul would have rather traveled to Rome as a free man in control of his own travel plans. Like, I want to go over here. I'm going to visit these churches. I'm going to preach the gospel over here. I'm going to get to Rome, but like, I'll get there in my time frame. I'll get there in my travel method. Like he, All of that was taken out of Paul's control. He was completely now out of control with this thing. It was all in the hands of the Romans to get Paul over to Rome. And yet God's will was being accomplished 
in Paul's life. And Paul was able to see, at least to some degree at this point, that God's hand was in these things, and he submitted himself to God's call, God's will for his life, which was why he appealed to Caesar. Caesar? Caesar? Caesar. I'm still learning to talk. Knowing, as he appealed to Caesar, that this was a guaranteed way to get to where Jesus wanted him to go, which was Rome. This section of verses is, is pretty monumental in the book of Acts because now the, the rest of the book of Acts is going to flow from this point. That This appeal to Caesar is solidifying Paul going to Rome. It's providing the context for what's going to follow throughout the remainder of the book of Acts. As Luke now from this point is going to record how Paul got to Rome. And, and Lord willing, we'll see how this continues to unfold now that Paul has made his appeal to Caesar in our study in, in two weeks. But before we end our study, I, wanna, I want us to consider some points of application as we consider how Paul embraced the call of God on his life and, and see how we can learn to better and more fully embrace the call of God on our lives. Just some, some things that stuck out to me as I considered what Paul went through in, in the verses that we considered this morning, that we looked at this morning. You know, embracing the call of God requires us to walk by faith and hold tightly to God's promises. You know, it's hard to embrace something, to grab onto something firmly and wholeheartedly when we're not really trusting the Lord. It's hard to embrace something when you're going, but Lord, I don't know if you're really good. Lord, Lord, I don't know if you're really going to be faithful in this thing. Lord, I don't know if you're really present with me. God, I'm not super confident of your promises. In order for us to really, the, kind of the first step, if you will, to embrace the call of God, we've got to walk by faith. We've got to trust the Lord. We've got to hold on to the promises that he's made to us in his word. Another thing, embracing the call of God will, will help us, just as we see with Paul, will help us to patiently endure when we face difficulty, just as we see with Paul in those two years of imprisonment in Caesarea where, you know, he didn't see any visible fruit coming about from his conversations and, and his opportunities to preach the gospel to Felix. How do we make it through those sorts of times, those sorts of seasons? How do we keep, let's say in Paul's situation where he's preaching the gospel and he's not seeing any change in the person he's preaching to, how do we keep em enduring in that? How do we keep being faithful witnesses to people like that? Well, we've got to embrace the commission that Jesus has given us, that that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to share the gospel. He wants people to get saved. And you and I are part of his plan to see lost people find salvation in Jesus Christ. 
embracing the call of God. Another thing here will help us to not feel forgotten or abandoned by the Lord, to not lose heart in times of waiting or times where we don't clearly see what God is doing or maybe times where things aren't working out the way that we thought or prayed or hoped that they would. Why? Because embracing the call of God means embracing the Word of God. How can we feel forgotten or abandoned when we look at what God's Word has said and He says in His Word, look, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or Jesus, even in giving the, the great commission that we call it in Matthew 28, He says, I will be with you always. How can we ever feel forgotten or abandoned or or like the Lord is not present in our circumstances when we remember and we embrace the word of God to us. To not lose heart in those times of waiting where, you know, maybe he said something to us. He's given us some sort of promise or confidence about something, but he hasn't given us the timetable of it that we can stand upon what we know even when we don't know how it's going to work out, how God's going to accomplish the thing that he said. You know that we're not responsible for that part? We're not responsible for working out the plan of God. God is. You know what our responsibility is? To trust his plan and to walk in obedience to the things that he said. That's it. Paul didn't have to go, okay, God, you're calling me to go to Rome. Let me get my travel, but like, let me get my, let me, let me connect with my travel agent. Like, let's get this thing figured out. Let's figure out where all the ports I'm going to stop at, the kind of ship I'm going to travel on. Even when he appeals to Caesar, he doesn't go, hey, guys, let me talk to you about this whole thing. Like, I've got some great ideas here. He had to put it all in the Lord's hands. He had to trust that the Lord was going to get him there. Another thing about embracing the call of God is that it requires us, the sort of we've already looked at in previous things, it requires us to keep sharing the good news about Jesus, the gospel message with others, that we are to bear witness, testify about Jesus and make disciples of Jesus. This is, this is foundational for us. As disciples, we are disciples who make disciples. Saved people help other people be saved. Saved people point lost people to the Savior. That's what we're called to do. And when we're not doing that, we've kind of lost sort of our spiritual bearings, our motivation in life, that that is supposed to be in the forefront for you and for me. Another thing about embracing the call of God is that it will not keep us from difficulty, but it will help us to keep trusting Jesus in the midst of difficulty as we keep our eyes on him. You know, if we wanted a problem-free, difficult-free life, putting our faith in Jesus Christ is not, that's not, what it's, that's not what's gonna get us there, but neither is 
forsaking Jesus. Forsaking Jesus only means an eternity in hell. Embracing Jesus and the call of Jesus, embracing the call to discipleship, yes, it's difficult, but it is the best thing that you and I could ever do with our lives. There is no greater reward, there is no greater joy or peace or fulfillment found in any other way of living than living for the way of Jesus. Look, we've not signed up for a problem-free or easier, comfortable life. But we have surrendered our lives to Jesus. That means he's Lord and not us. And as Lord, he knows what he's doing. As Lord, he knows all that's going to happen. He knows the outcome of our lives. He knows, what's our, he knows our tomorrow. And our next week, he knows how many breaths that we have left in our body. He knows how long our heart's going to keep beating. And knowing all those things, he's good. He's good. And we can trust him. And we can continue to commit our lives to our faithful Savior. To keep looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Guys, as we think about embracing the call of God, I just want us to close with this. The Lord has embraced us. We embrace these things, but only because he's embraced us. He's welcomed us in. He's given us a home. He's given us new life. He's promised us heaven. He's given us salvation. He's given us his spirit. He's left us with his word. And the things that now we embrace are just an outflow of, of, of having that closeness of fellowship, that relationship with the true and living God. And I'm excited to learn more and see more about what God does through the book of Acts, through the life of the Apostle Paul, through the, through the early church, what the Spirit was doing. Whenever the worship team come back up. You know, as we consider all these sorts of points of application, the, our section of verses this morning... I just want to ask us this morning, and, and, and I'm not asking to get a response from you, but for each of us to be able to, before the Lord, be able to really honestly answer this. Are we, have I, embracing the call, the commission, the will of God for my life? Are you embracing all that God has said in his word to you? I can't answer that for you. It, it can even be hard for me to answer for me. It might be something for each of us to kind of take away from this morning and, and, and pray through and bring before the Lord. Lord, have I really embraced wholeheartedly? Have I welcomed in? Have I accepted all that you've said to me in your word? Or is there things that I've sort of push to the side 
Are there, th- are there things that I've sort of picked and, ch- and chosen what I want to embrace and what I don't want to? And so actually, maybe there's some disobedience in my life. Maybe there's a lack of trust in my life. Maybe I'm walking more by sight than by faith. To know in those moments, if that's what we've got going on, that the Lord in that is not condemning us, but he does want to draw us out. He wants to draw us out of any of those places that we would be able to honestly say, Lord, I'm embracing. By your grace, by the power of your spirit, with your help, Lord, I'm embracing what you have for me. Lord, I'm embracing all that your word says to me. Lord, I'm embracing all that your spirit is wanting to do in my life and through my life for your glory because that's it. The glory of God is what we're to be living for, the kingdom of God, not us, not me, not my wants, not my will, but his will to be done. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Your word, Lord, which which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word, Lord, that's able to divide between bone and marrow, Lord, soul and spirit. Lord, you can get into the deepest parts of us to help us see, Lord, what's of us and what's of you. Lord, we need that. Lord, even this morning as we consider this subject of embracing your call, Lord, your will, your word, your commission. God, that maybe for some of us, there's, there is areas, Lord, where we're, we've, we've grabbed a hold of some things, but Lord, other things we just kind of have chosen that we don't need to obey, we don't need to walk in. Lord, to know this morning, Lord, that that's just disobedience. (laughs) Just to call it what it is, Lord, it's sin. To remember that confession is just saying the same thing about something as someone else. So, Lord, when you call us to confess our sin, you're calling us, Lord, to say the same thing about our sin that you do. That means that we can't make light of it, we can't sweep it under a rug. Lord, we just got to call it as it is. And so, Lord, those areas of disobedience or, Lord, maybe it's delayed obedience for some. As a parent, maybe we've said that for some of us. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. But maybe we need to be reminded of that this morning. That, Lord, you just want us to grab a hold of all that you have, all that your word says. And remembering, Lord, as we do that, Lord, that you're embracing us. Lord, you've got us. You're with us. You, Lord, you have what we need to live out, Lord, these lives that you called us to live. As disciples, Lord, who make disciples. As disciples, Lord, who prioritize your commission who make our lives about Jesus, about your kingdom, Lord, about your gospel, about the souls of people 
Lord, that we would have your heart for others. And God, be driven by the love of God to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that are dying without you. Lord God, revive us. Lord, transform us. God, mold us and shape us more and more. God, areas that we need to grow, Lord, areas where change is needed, Lord, do that. God, areas where we're lacking in confidence, Lord, where we're lacking in faith, Lord, God, increase our faith. Lord, give us greater confidence in who you are and in what you've said and in what you said you'll do. God, bless your people this morning. Lord, would you make your face to shine upon them. Lord, would they be reminded this morning, Lord, that you are for them and not against them. That God, nothing can separate us from your love. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor any other created thing. Lord, nothing in all of existence can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we just want to love you in return. Lord, we want to live for you. Help us to do that. Look, if there's anyone here this morning and you've never just opened your heart to Jesus Christ, maybe you've never first, you know, had that sort of moment where you've actually, before the Lord said, you know, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Lord, I need your salvation. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Look, look, Jesus paid the debt that you owed. He took the punishment that you deserved, that I deserved. He took our wrath so that you and I could just simply put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross and find salvation. If that's anybody here this morning and and you need to make that decision, would you just stand where you're at? I'd love to pray for you. Anybody at all this morning? Maybe there's someone listening even later on or watching online right now and that's you. I just encourage you in your own heart. Maybe you'd stand where you're at, where you're you're sitting just in, in the posture of your heart that you would just go, Jesus, I'm a... I'm a sinner, and I need your salvation. Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Jesus, I repent of my sin. I turn away from it today, and I put my faith in you. Would you seal me with your spirit? Would you... Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Would you give me the hope and promise of eternal life with you? Lord God, I I confess with my mouth that you're Lord, Jesus. I believe in my heart that God raised you, Jesus, from the dead. 
And Jesus, thank you for saving me by grace through faith. I just encourage you, if you've done that this morning, the Lord says you will be saved. But Lord God, for those of us that have already put our faith in you, Lord, we just want to respond now to your word and songs of praise. Just pouring out our hearts to you, Lord. Lifting up our voices to you, Lord. Taking of the communion elements, Lord, just another opportunity, Lord, to commune with you. To embrace you, Lord, wholeheartedly. Maybe it's the opportunity to join the prayer team and be prayed over this morning if that's you take advantage of that but Lord would you just continue to meet with us continue to move in our midst Lord God we we thank you we love you Lord send us out of our time this morning Lord in the power of your spirit that we would embrace all that you have for us Lord and, and most importantly embrace you knowing that you've embraced us Jesus, we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.